May the power of thy mercy, O Lord, shatter and bring to naught all that might tarnish the sanctity of priests. For thou canst do all things. Amen. Virgin most powerful, pray for us. Virgin Most Powerful Radio, sharing the gospel with clarity and charity. Hello and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. This week we are going to conclude our remarks on the quest for Christian unity, or what is known as ecumenism. And we're asking the question, can the Vatican II decree on the document, uh, the document on ecumenism, um, can that be interpreted in an orthodox manner via the hermeneutic of continuity. We laid all the groundwork last week, and we're going to kind of uh, give us the nuts and bolts this time, answer that question. And uh, maybe some other things as well. We'll see what we have time for. But to begin, as is our custom, I want to talk about the gospel from the Sunday that began this week, which was the 18th after Pentecost. And the gospel was the healing of the paralyzed man, the version from Matthew. This is one of those episodes in the gospel that's represented in all of the synoptics in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, This Sunday we get Matthew's version. And I'm reading the translation using the New Catholic Bible. Therefore, Jesus got into a boat and crossing over the lake arrived at his hometown. Some people then approached him carrying a paralyzed man lying on a bed. On perceiving their faith, Jesus said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. On hearing this, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. Jesus perceived what they were thinking, and he said, Why do you harbor evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Stand up and walk? But so that you may come to realize that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralyzed man, Stand up, Take your bed and go to your home. The man got up and returned to his home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe and they glorified God for having given such authority to men. Thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. And of course, this is uh, the Gospel reading from last Sunday, the Sunday that began this week, from the calendar of the traditional Latin Mass, so the extraordinary form calendar, or the erstwhile extraordinary form. I don't know if that uh, term is still in use after the Holy Father's motu proprio of last month, but uh, we'll continue to use it until they tell us to stop, I guess. So looking at this um, gospel, there's a few things jump out. First off, it says that he got into a boat, our Lord, and went to his hometown, which you might assume is Nazareth. But uh, as is clear uh, from the context and also the other gospels, Uh, It's not referring to Nazareth, but to Capernaum, because uh, he was no longer welcome in his hometown, so he made Capernaum the headquarters of his earthly ministry. In fact, in in Mark's account of this uh, episode from Mark 2, he tells us that Jesus was curing people in a private home in Capernaum, which is traditionally uh, taken to be the home of St. Peter and that the crowd of people who had come to be healed was in fact so large that uh, the paralyzed man's friends had to actually let him down through a hole in the roof in order to see Jesus, which of course was a powerful illustration of their very firm faith that Jesus not only could, but would in fact heal their friend. Uh, Also in Luke's gospel, we read that our Lord's miracles and his increasing uh, fame in Galilee had stirred up the scribes and the Pharisees, right? We, we see the Pharisees in this episode, but uh, his uh, popularity actually had the scribes and Pharisees stirred up from, from all around the whole land. So they had come to Capernaum, not just from Galilee, but from Judea and from Jerusalem as well to see what this Jesus was up to. Now, when the scribes 
think to themselves that uh, our Lord's claim to forgive the man's sin was blasphemy, he asks them, why do you harbor evil thoughts in your hearts? So uh, the first thing you'll notice is that Jesus can see what is in their hearts, which of course is a pretty powerful demonstration of his divinity. And then he asks them, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, stand up and walk? Now, obviously, it's easy enough to say your sins are forgiven uh, because we can't look into a man's soul. We can't look at a man's heart and see whether he's really been cleansed of his sins or not. So um, any deceiver, any false prophet could say such words without uh, any chance of his deception being proven. But, uh, But to command a paralyzed man to stand up and walk home now that's a much you know more difficult thing. That that's a, another situation entirely, because obviously it can be proven on the spot whether those words have any power or not. Now at the same time, in the natural order of things, it, it's easier to heal a person physically than spiritually. I mean, we all know that it's easier to uh, to mend a broken leg than it is to mend a broken heart. But here. Christ uses a miraculous physical healing to indicate the miraculous spiritual healing of the man's soul. And he says to the scribes and Pharisees, but that you may come to realize that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralyzed man, I I say to you, stand up, take up your bed, and go home, and he does. And after that, he says in verse 8, when the crowd saw, or the scripture says, when the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they glorified God for having given such authority to men. It doesn't say that they all said, oh, goodness gracious, uh, Jesus must be God the Son, second person of the Blessed Trinity. No, they understood that he was a man, uh, or you know, they perceived him as just a man, although he was God as well. And so they, they thanked God, they glorified God for giving that such authority to men. And and taken together, those verses, we can see that as Son of Man, that Christ in his human nature had the power to forgive sins. And that means that that power could be bestowed on the apostles, which in fact our Lord does in John 20, 22 and Matthew 18, 18, where uh, he says to the apostles, or he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit, whose sins you forgive, they are forgiven. And so just as the apostles, we read in the book of Acts, they worked miracles only in his name, uh, they and their successors, the priests and bishops of today, can forgive sins only in his name, in his authority. We even say in his person, in, in persona Christi. So, you know, the sacrament of penance uh, was given by our Lord to the church uh, as a truly divine power for the comfort and the salvation of sinners, and that's you and me. So um, you and I should also glorify God for having given such authority to men by making a thanksgiving after we receive absolution in the sacrament of penance. Okay, now there's, there's one other thing in this gospel, and it's, I think it's easier to, to pass over in the midst of all of these you know, uh, important things that are happening, that when he says, you know, to the paralyzed man, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven, and the, the Pharisees thought to themselves, he's blaspheming, and he asks this question, why do you harbor evil thoughts in your hearts? And he's asking us that question as well. You know, when I was pursuing my uh, uh, counseling certificate, I learned that psychologists tell us that uh, the way you think affects the way you act. Um, and many of our problems proceed from what they call stinking thinking, okay? That's bad thoughts. And psychologists are not the only ones who realize this. Um, The devil knows that if he can control your thoughts, he can control your actions, and that's why he's got such a stranglehold on the media. You know, after all, mortal sin, I mean, to be guilty of a mortal sin requires sufficient reflection and consent of the will, So it follows that you cannot commit a mortal sin uh, without thinking about it first. So what's a good Catholic to do? I mean, that's the question, isn't it? Uh, Let me tell you a story. 
Once upon a time, a father and his son lived in the forest in a little house by a stream. And one day the father told his son, take this pail of garbage and go up to where the stream begins and dump it in the water. And so he did. And then the next day, the garbage was spread all along the stream and the bits of garbage would float along and then they'd disappear for a bit and then pop up again. And then the farmer told his son, take this pail of lilies to the source of the stream and throw them in. And so he did. And then the next day, all along the course of the stream were lilies and they would float along for a while and disappear and then pop up again. And then the father said to the son, this stream is like your mind. Whatever you put into it will float along it for the rest of your life. It'll disappear for a while, but it'll come to the surface again. And if you fill your mind with evil thoughts, they'll be there all your life and pop up to the surface to annoy you at the time when you least expect or want them. On the other hand, if you fill your mind with good thoughts, they will be there all your life to comfort you when you need them most. So he says, you're careful about what you throw into a stream at its source. Be careful what you put into your mind. And the moral of the story is, if you guard your thoughts, you won't have to worry about your actions. Now, sometimes bad thoughts just seem to force themselves into your mind. You don't want them. And yet fighting them head on sometimes just seems to make it worse. Well, the time-honored cure is to distract yourself, to change the subject. Uh, Somebody once said that when he had bad thoughts, he'd imagine somebody gave him a million dollars, but only an hour to spend it in. So, So what would he buy? And, of course, before he spent the money, quote-unquote, the bad thoughts would be gone. Now, I might suggest that uh, meditating on the mysteries of the rosary would be more wholesome, not to mention more spiritually efficacious, but you get the point. And it's the same thing when our Lord, you know, asks us this same question. He asks the scribes, why do you think evil in your heart? Because there's no need for it. And St. Paul tells us, finally, brethren, let your minds be filled with whatever is true Whatever is honorable, just, pure, whatever is pleasing, commendable, excellent, or worthy of praise, right? We can uh, have our minds filled with lilies of truth. And if we do, St. Paul says, then the God of peace will be with you. And that's no nonsense. Back with lots more after this. Stick with us. No Nonsense Catholic. Welcome back. Round two of No Nonsense Catholic here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. In the last few weeks, we've been talking about uh, the Novus Ordo Mise, because the new order of the Mass. Uh, Because although I regularly assist at the traditional Latin Mass with my family, I know that most Catholics don't. In fact, many, if not most, uh, do not and cannot, even if they would like to, uh, just simply because they haven't the opportunity. And I suspect that uh, considering Pope Francis's modo proprio, Traditionis Custodes, which is dedicated to eliminating the traditional Mass once and for all, uh, it's probably only going to get more difficult, uh, at least in some places. So because of this, I have been uh, re-examining and advocating what Benedict XVI called the hermeneutic of continuity, which simply put means that I don't believe Vatican II uh, was a break with the tradition of the Church. Um, as I've often said uh, on this program, I am a traditional Catholic, but I don't define traditional Catholic by what mass a person goes to. Being a traditional Catholic means being able to say the act of faith and mean it. So the, the, the point of the, the hermeneutic of continuity is that we should be able to interpret the documents of Vatican II in light of the ancient doctrine of the faith, rather than trying to reinterpret the sacred deposit of uh, Catholic doctrine in light of Vatican II. And that is what uh, Benedict XVI would call the hermeneutic of rupture. And this hermit, and a hermeneutic, by the way, if, if you're not familiar with the term, it, it, it means like it's an interpretational key. Your hermeneutic is the way you interpret something. So I interpret Vatican II in light of the tradition of the Church. I don't reinterpret the tradition of the Church in light of Vatican II. It's, it's, it's really that simple. Now, uh, this hermeneutic of rupture, I guess, would be best exemplified in what's known as the spirit of Vatican II. And a great deal of mischief has been done in the Church in the name of this, this infinite, uh, in, uh, infamous 
spirit of the council, which often has little or nothing to do with the actual teaching of the council. And I would submit to you, if you're looking for the for the authentic spirit of Vatican II, it would be represented by the Pope, now saint, that convened the council. In the words of uh, Pope St. John XXIII, at the opening of Vatican II, he said, the substance of the ancient doctrine of the deposit of faith is one thing, and the way it is presented is another. And so, he said, the greatest concern, quote, unquote, greatest concern of the council must be, quote, the sacred deposit of Christian doctrine should be guarded and taught more efficaciously. If there is a genuine spirit of Vatican II, then that's it. Now, the point is, Benedict XVI taught very clearly that the documents of Vatican II can admit of a traditional interpretation. Even uh, the most controversial documents of the Council, including Unitatis Redensegratio, which means restoration of unity, that's the decree on ecumenism. Now, we started examining that decree on ecumenism last week and quoted from the document on, uh, on ecumenism and from Lumen Gentium, which is the Vatican II uh, dogmatic constitution on the Church and so on. Now, today we are going to continue or, and conclude our examination, taking um, uh, as a dependable guide Father Lawrence Lavozic, the author of more than 30 books and 75 pamphlets on the Catholic faith, including The Hidden Power of Kindness, and, of course, his trusty series of um, catechetical works for children, which provide, has provided so many Catholics in this country with a, a, a sure basis, a solid foundation in the Catholic faith. Now, he talks about ecumenism. I'll start with a, uh, with a uh, quote from the document, Unitatis Redensegratio number 4. It says, Today, in many parts of the world, the, under the inspiring grace of the Holy Spirit, many efforts are being made in prayer, word, and action to attain that fullness of unity which Jesus Christ desires. This sacred council exhorts all the Catholic faithful to recognize the signs of the times and to take an active and intelligent part in the work of ecumenism. Okay, how to unpack that? Well, first off, and, and we laid the groundwork for this. If you, if you missed last week's program, you, you know, uh, might want to take a, a listen to it uh, at vmpr.org. They're archived there. Um, and you can listen to the Quest for Unity Part 1, where I, I kind of lay the groundwork for this, what the, what the Council said about ecclesiology, about the Church itself, and about um, uh, these, the, the unity of the Church, which is the first of the four marks of the Church. Catholic Church is one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. There is only one church, and there's only one church because Jesus brought the same good news uh, to everybody and the same new life of grace, and his church is the union of those who follow that call, the visible union, right? And, and the night before he died, our Lord, and this is uh, quoted in the document as well, our Lord prayed for Christian unity, he prayed for the apostles, and then he said, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their word, that all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you. I pray that they may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. You know, the, the disunity of, of, of Christendom is, is, is a great scandal. It is, unity is that first mark of the church to tell people that, that Jesus, you know, was really sent by God. St. Paul talks about this in Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 5. He says, I plead with you as a prisoner for the Lord to live a life worthy of the calling you have received with perfect humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another lovingly, making every effort to preserve the unity which has the Spirit as its origin and peace as its binding force. There is one body and one Spirit, just as there is but one hope given all of you by our call. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and works through all and is in all. So the Roman Catholic Church is that worldwide community of the followers of Jesus, united, right, in unity, united around the successor of Peter and the apostles. Now, Father Lavosic breaks down uh, into four parts, the duty of Catholics in regard 
to the work of Christian unity or ecumenism. The document says we must take an active part. Well, well, how do we do that? And, and he breaks it down for us. Number one is prayer and work for Christian unity are essential to Catholic life. That's the first thing this document teaches. Okay. Number two, Catholics should be deeply and personally concerned over the present sad divisions uh, among Christians. Number three, Catholics should be the ones to take the first steps in ecumenical dialogue. And number four, that they should try and make the church more faithful to Christ and to its heritage from the apostles. Now, that number four is the one you don't hear about all that much, do you? You know, it's ironic that the the, the hermeneutical continuity would be, uh, you know, so clearly expressed in this uh, document that has been used to to justify the hermeneutic of rupture. But uh, we're going to get to that in, in due course. Um, the document on ecumenism, number eight, says, in certain special circumstances, such as the prescribed prayer for unity and during ecumenical gatherings, it is allowable and indeed desirable that Catholics should join in prayer with their separated brethren. Such prayers in common are certainly an effective means of obtaining the grace of unity, and they are a true expression of the ties which still bind Catholics to their separated brethren. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. That's Matthew 18, 20. All right. So to unpack this, uh, number one, prayer and work for Christian unity are essential to Catholic life. The church is one. It's one because there's only one Jesus who communicates the same life of God to everyone that believes in him. Right? That, That grace of baptism is given to all who are validly baptized, and that includes those who are baptized outside the visible unity of the Catholic Church. There is a basic level of unity amongst the baptized. And if we, as Catholics, really love Christ, we're going to do everything in our power by prayer and work uh, so that his will, his prayer for unity would be realized in the Church, that all may be one. Now, Ecumenism isn't something that is uh, typically associated with traditional Catholics. But I, I look over to, I'm, I'm sitting in the studio here, Studio A is, is right through the window to my right, and it's where Terry Barber sits every day and does the show, uh, Terry and Jesse show, with Jesse Romero. And they um, are, you know, traditional Catholics in the sense that they can say the, the act of faith and mean it, uh, and both of them uh, attend the traditional Latin Mass uh, not exclusively, but at least uh, uh, occasionally. And they are constantly, I mean, because they, they're, they're always talking about topics that are of concern to uh, society and to culture, right? The, the, the culture war, some people call it. So they're often talking about pro-life issues, and they're talking about political issues, issues of religious freedom. They're talking about standing up against uh, tyranny, like uh, some of the uh, the rather unjust mandates that have accompanied the uh, the governmental response to the COVID nineteen pandemic, and so on, and again and again, you will hear them advocate that Catholics stand together with their separated brethren, with non Catholic Christians, that we stand together even with uh, Catholics, Protestants, Evangelicals, and and even non Christians who are people of goodwill, that we stand together for our common heritage, which is Western civilization, which is Catholic, really. And that's the true face of ecumenism. You know, uh, Protestants, Catholics, Evangelicals praying together in front of an abortion clinic, for example. See, we don't think of that as ecumenism, but it is. And I think that's the true face of ecumenism, because so many of us have come to associate ecumenism with indifference, with the idea that, that all religions are, are basically the same or that they're, they're all equally valid, they're all equally true. And this, again, we talked about this last week and we set the ground, uh, laid the groundwork for, for looking at this document. Um, and that and the public face of ecumenism has become these kind of symbolic gestures where, uh, you know, high-ranking clergy, the, the kind of elite uh, members of the different uh, uh, denominations and the church will gather together and, you know, make speeches and, and say prayers. And 
not really accomplished much of anything. Uh, 50 years has gone by and we continue to have these things, but we don't see a whole lot of progress in the reunification of Christians. Okay. And I think, again, that's why it's Christians, uh, Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox, etc., working together. And then in that context, you know, um, they, they have the opportunity, our separated brethren have the opportunity to um, understand how Catholics approach these things and how they live their life and how, you know, they, they benefit from being part of that one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Okay, when we come back, going to talk about uh, the historical uh, breakdown uh, amongst Christians and why we should uh, be concerned and why Catholics are the ones who should really take the first step in the ecumenical dialogue and that it's really a traditional thing to do. All that and more when we come back with uh, No Nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stay with us. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. Matthew Arnold here talking about ecumenism and the hermeneutic of continuity. Can we understand ecumenism in a traditional way? And I believe the answer is yes. Just talking about um, Catholics and uh, non-Catholic Christians working together, praying together for the common good. Some people might say, well, that's not the tradition of the church. You're not supposed to pray with these non-Catholic Christians. And that, of course, is not true. What is forbidden and technically, you know, still is forbidden, is what's called communio in sacris. A Catholic cannot participate in non-Catholic worship. Okay, that would be, that would be wrong. But you can certainly pray with a non-Catholic. You can pray with a, a, a non-Christian. You can pray with a sinner. How else could you possibly evangelize people if you didn't pray with and for them? And that's as, you know, as, as Catholic and as biblical as you can imagine. All right, number two here on our uh, duties of Catholics regarding Christian unity is that we as Catholics should be deeply and personally concerned over the present sad division of Christians, the division amongst the followers of Christ. The church is one, but Christians are divided uh, because of historical differences and circumstances and bitterness and resentment uh, over these things. And well, okay, I guess the word I'm looking for is sin, right? Because of sin, the followers of Jesus uh, have been driven apart to the point that they don't share their Christian life in common. And, uh, and part of this has to do with error, and what the church refers to as heresy, the idea that you can pick and choose uh, amongst the church's teachings, which you are going to accept and which you are going to reject. You know, uh, a different understanding of the gospel, the meaning of uh, Christ's life and teaching, the, the meaning of the Holy Scriptures. Uh, these things differ amongst uh, Catholics and their separated brethren. And... Um, and those differences prevents us from, you know, coming together. And there's, there's many different uh, ecclesial communities, many in even different churches, properly so-called, in the long history of Christianity, because there have been serious differences amongst our Lord's followers over the meaning of the gospel and, and the Christian way of life. And so divisions, separate groups, have appeared. And principally, you have the Roman Catholic Church, you have, and then all the various uh, Eastern churches that are um, in union with uh, the Roman Church. Then you have the Eastern Orthodox, who uh, broke away in the 11th century. Then you have the Anglicans, who broke away in the 16th century. And then you have all the various Protestant churches that came along with uh, uh, Martin Luther and and uh, Calvin and Zwingli and the others, and. Um, and then today, of course, we have a, a myriad of, of evangelical and fundamentalist churches who do not even consider themselves Protestant. And, and the, the thing is, this, it, it is a sad condition, and it should deeply concern us 
you know, and, and the, the differences are, are substantial. Uh, the, the solos that uh, were introduced by Martin Luther, the scripture is the sole rule of faith. Okay? Faith is the sole means of salvation. Uh, you know, grace uh, is, is grace alone apart from works, right? That we are saved only by, by uh, uh, grace through faith and, and not by the works of the law right as it <clears throat> says in in St Paul but then again you know that's that's a myopic view that because we obviously have to cooperate with God's grace so it's it's scripture and tradition it's it's um faith and works okay and so on and this can really you know throw you off you've got all these different uh, denominations and Martin Luther really thought that his understanding of Scripture was just going to be evident to anyone who picked up the Bible for themselves. And he was shocked, shocked to discover that that was not the case. Not long after he tacked up his 95 theses, he, you know, discovered that uh, while he was trying, he said, I've tried to get rid of one pope, now there's a hundred. Later on, he said, there are as many popes as there are heads. You know, and at the Council of Trent, you know, 50 years after... uh, Martin Luther attacked up the 95 theses. Catholic Church responded with an ecumenical council. And by that time, I, it wasn't so much that any one Protestant group strayed so far from the teaching of the church, but because they went in so many different directions. It's like wrangling kittens, you know, trying, trying to get everybody back on the same page. And then with the advent of um, the evangelical fundamentalist movement, in the 19th century, uh, the denominations just started to, to, to multiply geometrically. And schism becomes almost like a default amongst some of our separated brethren. Uh, in the town where I live, there is a, a stately mainstream church. It was built in the, uh, the turn of the 20th century, where it was built in the late 1800s. Beautiful edifice. And not three blocks away, there's another church of the same denomination, and I thought, I wonder how that came to be. And well, what it is, is that the original congregation, this ecclesial community, all gathered in this one, and when I use the word church, I'm talking about church in the sense of the building. They're all gathered in this one church. And then some people decided they didn't like the way things were being administrated. And there were, you know, harsh words and hurt feelings. And so part of the congregation literally went down the block and founded their own uh, community in the same denomination. And of course, since then, uh, we, we've seen the proliferation of denominations to the point where there are tens of thousands, something over 40,000 different uh, Christian denominations now. And that's, you know, that is concerning. That is a sad state of affairs. That is the scandal of Christendom, that Christians are not all united together in the same church the way the Bible says we're supposed to be and the way our Lord prayed that we would be, okay? So we should be deeply concerned and personally concerned because you know people in your life that, uh, to whom this applies. Good people and people that you care about. And that leads us to number three, which is that Catholics should be the ones to take the first steps in ecumenical dialogue, all right? And um, I know that... Uh, Ecumenism, properly understood, is the acceptance of this basic unity amongst the baptized. Okay, it's not evangelization. Our separated brethren, they've been evangelized. They, they believe in Jesus. They believe uh, that we're separated um, from God by sin and that Christ is uh, the only way to overcome that separation. You have to you know, accept his grace in order to do so. But they haven't been, you know, catechized. They haven't been uh, sacramentalized beyond typically baptism. You know, some Protestant uh, uh, communities also have some version of Holy Communion, or they look upon matrimony perhaps as a sacrament. Uh, but they don't have the full complement, obviously, uh, you know, sacramental confession and so forth. And so they're living without many of the means of grace that Christ intended to be our help to, uh, to reach heaven. And so we, as the elder brother, so to speak, 
You know, I mean, I know that there's a pride issue here that, uh, you know, it's like, well, wait a minute, why us? Why do we have, why do I have to be the one who's big about it? Why do I have to take the first step? They're the ones that left. Why do I? Well, of course, that's the thing that we are the ones that have the fullness of the faith. We're the ones with something to share, something they lack. And so, yes, it really does come down to us being the first to take, uh, you know, steps in this direction. And so we should. And you don't have to proselytize. You don't have to push Catholicism down anybody's throat. I know any number of people involved in the pro-life movement who were uh, evangelical or fundamentalist Christians who became Catholic because of the example set by their Catholic uh, brethren praying outside the abortion clinic. They said, you know, these people have a, a peace that I lack. And they wanted to find out, you know, what's the source of that? Where does that come from? What's different? You know, uh, Steve Ray, <clears throat> uh, who I met not long after his conversion, was producing some of his audio and whatnot. Still a good friend of this apostle. He appears often on the Terry and Jesse show. But Steve Ray uh, was a fundamentalist Christian who became Catholic. And he said it was, for him, he didn't feel like he had to give anything up. Well, certainly his mistaken opinion about some things, but but he um, everything that he had as a Christian, he still has every authentic uh, uh, gift um, of you know his Christian life. He still retains, but now he just has so much more. I think he was the first one that I ever heard use that analogy of um, the church as being like a cruise ship, you know, and they've got all the stuff, the the, the big uh, buffets and and all the entertainment and the and the activities that you get to do. Uh, and, you know, but some people on, on the cruise ship, maybe they get their own idea. Maybe they like some things better than others. And they take some of the things with them, you know, get into a lifeboat and, and, you know, drop into the ocean on their own. And then some other people say, hey, you know, that, I, um, that looks like a good idea, but I don't like the things they took. I like these things. I'm going to take those things and so forth. And then some people are looking at them in their little boats alongside the big boats going, hey, you know, they seem to be more in control of their own destiny. They, they look like they're having more fun than we are, and they join them in those and so on. But the idea was that, uh, you know, the Catholic Church is like this uh, cruise you know, ship with all these other little boats kind of bobbing along in the wake. And the point is that the Catholic, the, the, the cruise ship has the fullness of the experience, and the little boats only have what they took from the big ship. And it would probably, it's in everyone's interest that they all come back onto the big boat. All right. So we need to take the first step in ecumenical dialogue. And then finally, number four, is that Catholics, our duty uh, in regard to Christian unity is to try and make the church more faithful to Christ and to its heritage from the apostles. The fancy way of saying tradition. Okay. So we're going to talk about that when we come back with our uh, final segment on the quest for Christian unity. All right, stick with us. We'll be back uh, after these messages right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Do not go anywhere. Do not touch that dial. We'll be right back. Okay, welcome back. Final round here on No Nonsense Catholic, Virgin Most Powerful Radio, talking about the quest for Christian unity, the traditional understanding, if you will, of ecumenism. And uh, we were talking about the duties of Catholics in regard to Christian unity as portrayed by or presented in the uh, Vatican II decree on ecumenism. And number four, Catholics should try to make the church more faithful to Christ and to its heritage from the apostles. In other words, uh, quoting St. Paul to the Thessalonians, stand fast and hold to the traditions that you have learned, whether by word of mouth or our epistle, either from scripture or uh, tradition. The ability of the church to fulfill its mission which was given us by Christ, right? The, the great commission to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations and to teach them everything whatsoever I have taught to you, right? Not just the, not just the basics 
of the gospel, not just the four spiritual laws, but everything, the creed, the commandments, the sacraments, prayer, the holy liturgy, all of it. And our ability to fulfill that mission is bound up with the development of a spirit of stewardship on the part of the faithful. You know, Vatican II, another one of its novelties was it was the first ecumenical council to produce a document uh, entirely devoted to the vocation of the laity, apostolicum axiositatem, right? Which obviously we don't have time to get into now, but it is our job as lay people to sanctify the secular order, right? To, To help make the church outside the four walls of the church building, or rather to make the world outside the four walls of the church building more holy. And we can't do that. You know, uh, you can't give what you don't have. So we can't make the world holy unless we ourselves are holy first, which of course is something that I've talked about ad nauseum on this program and will continue to until they make me stop. Uh, (laughs) It is our privilege uh, to be not merely servants of God, but his partners. He even, he calls us his, his, uh, his brethren. You know, we're not, we're not hirelings. We're, we're sons. We're children of the father. And that's what, what gives to our, our stewardship of the faith, um, our sense of hope and gratitude and, and, and the, the light and the joy that comes with being Catholic. You know, and when I talk about stewardship, you know, I think a lot of people, um, you know, well, I supported the church and, you know, church projects and, you know, uh, giving to the, uh, whatever, the uh, collection plate. And it's, but it's more than that. It is more than that. It's carrying out the gospel in our own lives. It's taking the gospel of Christ into every aspect of our life in the world and to extend that message to others. You know, um, Catholics recognize the unique fullness of the Catholic Church, which is, according to our belief, the ordinary means of salvation. And because of that, it's something that we would desire to share with everyone. Uh, we, are, we are heirs, co-heirs with Christ to the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And we share in these, well, you know, I hate to... to, to have to fall back on jargon that I can't, uh, but the, the, the unfathomable riches that, that are uh, available to us and that we should be not only willing but, but uh, zealous to lovingly dispense to others. You know, I mentioned last week that the hard part of the ecumenical dialogue is not to, to um, recognize the unique fullness of, you know, the Catholic Church, that's the easy part. The hard part, um, you know, for me, because of pride, is to recognize that uh, there are non-Catholics that have (laughs) authentic insights into the gospel within their own tradition, you know, that uh, it's like uh, Scott Hahn said, and of course we've, many people have said, I think uh, uh, Father Scanlon, Father Mike Scanlon said this to Scott originally, he said, God resists the proud even when they're right. And so, uh, the the um, Vatican II document on the Church says, talking about the the one Church of Christ, that it the Church constituted and organized in the world as a society, right? The Church that you can see subsists in the Catholic Church, and we talked about uh, substance and accidents and what subsist in means, and that it doesn't mean that the the Catholic Church or the Church of Christ can subsist elsewhere, but subsists uniquely in the Catholic Church. It is only there that you have the fullness of the faith. The Catholic Church governed by the successor of Peter and the bishops in communion with him. Although many elements of sanctification and of truth are found outside of her visible structure, we're talking the scripture and prayer and even the grace of baptism, these elements as gifts belonging to the Church of Christ are forces impelling toward Catholic unity. That the things that are separated brethren uh, accept and love about being a Christian should compel them, when it's properly understood, to in fact become Catholic. Catholic Church was born, it was founded, you know, by Christ on Peter, but it was born, it came to life on Pentecost Sunday, 
with the descent of the Holy Spirit on the apostles and the holy women and, and the 120 disciples. And Catholics believe that it's only through the Church that we can know for sure what God wills us to believe and to do in order to attain salvation. Without the Church, listen, this is, this is a quote from Father Lavozic. He said, Without the Church, religion becomes merely a matter of opinion and conjecture, with no man having any assurances as to what is true or false. So Catholics believe that it's only through the Church that we can find the security and certainty about the meaning and destiny of human life. For Catholic Christians, um, the, the, the Catholic life, you know, our life is not meaningless. We're not at the mercy of a blind, unreasonable fate. We know that we're walking in the sunlight of truth under the loving care of the Father in heaven with the guidance of the Church, his spiritual mother upon earth. Catholics recognize the unique fullness of the Catholic Church, which they believe to be the ordinary means of salvation. This is uh, Father Lavosic just summarizing what Vatican II actually teaches about ecumenism, which is very much consistent with what the Church has always taught, that the Church is Christ, living and working in the members of his mystical body. And as we have love and loyalty for Christ, we must have love and loyalty for his church. We must love his church, listen to her teaching and the deposit of faith, be faithful to the laws which as uh, mater and magister, as mother and teacher, as the mother of men's souls, our church finds necessary for our guidance along the way to salvation. And all of those who, of us who have received this as I say, this, the unfathomable riches of this great treasure of faith must guard it and pass it on to the generations who will come after us. And that, in a nutshell, is ecumenism. In, in, in the final analysis, then, ecumenism is not indifferentism. You know, ecumenism is not uh, recognizing that, that one religion is as good as another. Far from it. It does not say that, that uh, even that, that non-Catholic Christians are fine where they are. But obviously then, ecumenism is not an end in itself. We can't be satisfied just with having ecumenical gatherings and, and mouthing platitudes and giving speeches and saying prayers and then going home thinking that we've accomplished something. Ecumenism is not an end in its... its well, we did ecumenism, I guess we're done. No, <laughs> it's a means to an end. And this is where the rubber meets the road. This is, this is where the hermeneutic of continuity comes in handy. Although you can see it uh, you know, very plainly if you're looking through that lens, that according to Vatican II, what is the means or what is the end of which ecumenism is the means? What is the end to which ecumenism strives? And again, according to Vatican II, this is not me, this is Vatican II, the end of ecumenism is that, quote, all Christ's disciples will be peacefully united in the manner determined by Christ as one flock under one shepherd, unquote, in the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I call these segments, Will the Real Vatican II Please Stand Up? Well, the Real Vatican II just stood up. And that's no nonsense. Okay. A um, couple of uh, house cleaning things and then a little preview of next week's program. Number one, I have been talking about an upcoming conference. We're going to have a Marian conference here at the Sacred Heart Chapel in Covina at uh, the headquarters of Virgin Most Powerful Radio featuring myself and Mr. Terry Barber uh, on the uh, messages of Our Lady of Good Success and Our Lady of America and Our Lady of Fatima, a conference called It's All Mary, and uh, looking very much forward to that. I've been telling you folks to prepare to, uh, to come out here on the 2nd of October. Well, due to forces beyond my control, certainly, uh, we are going to actually postpone this Marian conference. It has been rescheduled. There won't be a conference in October. We are going to 
reschedule our Marion conference for um, May of next year. So again, another Marion month, which is the appropriate time to do it. And uh, because of that, and good things have come uh, from it. Not only do we have a little more time to prepare, there was also a uh, another speaker that Terry and I had hoped would be able to join us who was not available in October, who may in fact be available in May. So I'll be able to update you on that. Also, I've been working on uh, some things, working on uh, books and whatnot, uh, which may um, come to fruition between now and then. And I'll be able to share those with you also, which is another good thing. So the October 2nd Marion Conference has been rescheduled to May, date to be determined of 2022. Also uh, coming up in January, we're going to have our annual Spiritual Warfare Conference. So you can go on vmpr.org, find out about that. Um, And when we have it up with themes and, and registration and all that in the next couple of months, we'll let you know. Uh, also, next week, we're going to ask another question. We're going to talk about tradition and what it really is. What is tradition? Uh, and especially in light of some remarks that Pope Francis made just last week. So all that and more when we return next time with a more no-nonsense Catholic. Also want to encourage you, well, first off, to thank you for listening and for supporting us with your prayers And also, uh, for those of you that have been able to offer us some financial support, God has gifted you to the point that you have some uh, left over at the end of the month. Uh, If you could send some of that our way, we would be greatly, uh, greatly appreciative because that is the only way that we stay on the air and on the Internet. So uh, thank you so much for listening, and God bless you. We're praying for you. Till next time, may God richly bless you and your family. In the 1990s, I lived and worked in Hollywood. But when my wife Betty's mom took ill, we relocated to Orange County. And it was during this time in our lives that I converted to Catholicism. Once my eyes were opened to the truth, I couldn't learn enough about the faith. But I had less free time than ever, especially with a long commute. That's when I discovered the real value of Catholic audio. Listening to cassette tapes transformed by daily commute into a miniature retreat. And that's the beauty of Virgin Most Powerful Radio today. Since the podcasts are archived, you can...